I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors. Today, I'm interviewing Jonathan Eig, one of America's leading biographers, about his new bestseller, King, A Life, the first major cradle-to-grave biography of Martin Luther King Jr. to be published in over 40 years. The book came out on May 16, 2023, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on September 21st. Enjoy. Here is Jonathan Eig, our special guest. Hopefully all of you have gotten your books signed. If not, uh, when the program's over, Jonathan will be here uh, to be able to sign uh, your book if you haven't already. Uh, Jonathan presumably needs no introduction, and you can read the inside of the dust jacket to see his credentials. But what I will say about the book, an excerpt from this book appeared in the Wall Street Journal several months ago. And when I read it, I felt called to, to read the book. And then when I read the book, I felt called to create a lesson for my Sunday school class about the book. It was so powerful. So I've talked to many of you this morning and think, oh my gosh, this book's a doorstop. I couldn't possibly read this book. It's too thick. The good news is about the last 100 pages is bibliographic notes and index, so you don't have to read that part. <clears throat> but what you do read is, is every page is just loaded. So Jonathan, your, your previous books, Lou Gehrig, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, uh, now Martin Luther King, uh, you have uh, enriched uh, all of us who are history lovers with advancing our knowledge about all those people. So. Uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. And you may not realize it, but Jonathan wrote for the Dallas Morning News for five years. Back in the days when we had two newspapers. He said, uh, those, th those were That's the how old I am. <laughs> but uh, I've mentioned your earlier books in Jonathan, and, and I see a real progression. I mean, <clears throat> your first book, Lou Gehrig, Everybody's Hero, your second book, Jackie Robinson, who's my personal hero as well as many, but Jackie Robinson is not only a great athlete, but became a real leader in the civil rights movement. And kind of where he stopped, Muhammad Ali picks up, which was another major book. And of course, Muhammad Ali became an international figure, not just a national. And then kind of where Muhammad Ali, when you stop there and talk about the civil rights movement, it all leads to the top with Martin Luther King Jr. So was writing this book essentially inevitable for somebody who had covered Robinson and Ali and needed to figure out what's next? What can be better? Well, I don't know if it was inevitable, but it felt natural because I was interviewing people for both of those books, Robinson and Ali, who were in the civil rights sphere. And when I was working on Ali in particular, I was interviewing people like Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte and Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, and I asked them about the interactions between Ali and King. Uh, they met a couple of times. And I recommend, if you get a chance, go watch the YouTube video the, of, um, of Ali and King at a press conference in, in Louisville, because it's hilarious, because Ali keeps inter interrupting Martin Luther King. Like, <laughs> no one else in the history of the planet that would ever have the nerve. And, and King is just <clears throat> cracking up the whole time. It's beautiful. And King, it's funny, he, 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 you hardly ever see him laughing um, 
in, on, on television in public. He always felt like he had to present this very dignified air, in part because of the responsibilities of his job, but um, Ali had him, had him laughing. But in talking to all those people, I realized that there were still dozens, maybe hundreds of people around who knew Martin Luther King well, and that the window for that was closing to, to, to write a book based on interviews. And at the time, that it had been 35 years. The last King biography was published in 1982. And that's just wrong. Like, we need a new King biography at least every generation because his meaning changes to all of us. His meaning changes to American history um, as time goes by. And, there, the, and at the same time, we've also, over the, over the course of the last 20, 30 years, I think, watered down his image, um, turned him into a national monument and a holiday and forgotten how radical he was, forgotten that he was human. So it just seemed like after Ali that I knew these people, I had their numbers in my phone, I could call and get an, a, another appointment, and that somebody needed to write another King biography. Well, now that you've done it, and it's gotten high praise, New York Times bestseller, this is the definitive biography of Martin Luther King, presumably for the next couple of decades anyway. I thought, well, what's next? <laughs> Whoa. Is your next book going to be on Barack Obama? No. Um, um, in part because David Marinus is already doing it, but I don't think there's enough time has gone by to really judge Obama. So I wish, you know, I know if anybody can pull it off, it's Marinus. But um, I think, like, even with Ali, it had been 50 years since he uh, won the championship, became a Muslim, and protested the Vietnam War. 50 years is enough time to put some proper historical context. My concern with doing Obama would be that we don't know yet what his um, administration, what his time in office really means for us, how it changed the country, how he succeeded, how he failed. I think you need a little bit more space. So um, Harry Truman said it takes 50 years for the dust to settle. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so um, I'm not going to talk. I have an idea for the next book, um, and I'm hoping to... Uh, make a decision soon, but I, I'm not going to mention what it is yet. I'll, I'll, you'll have to have me back. No. <laughs> uh, I could test market it, but I got to It's too soon. Too soon. So, Jonathan, obviously, as Byron Sanders said last night, you're white and you're writing books about African Americans, but you're also Jewish. And, you, and Ali, of course, was Muslim. Uh, both Jackie Robinson and especially Martin Luther King were devoted Christians, how do you uh, cross the, the racial and religious lines to, to get into the minds of your subjects and feel confident about it? Uh, research, mostly. Um, but I will say, first of all, that I think that um, in some ways, you know, I think of myself as a journalist, so I, I can research anything. I, I feel confident that I can learn what I need to know. Um, but also, I think my Jewish faith has something to do with my interest in these subjects, because um, we, we, we share a lot of the same stories of, from the Bible. We share a lot of the same beliefs about God. And um, Judaism is really rooted in, in issues of justice. And these are stories about people pursuing justice in, in the way that is perhaps most out of um, line in America, that they, the American uh, justice system is not in line with the teachings of the Bible, um, in Martin Luther King's case. And he's determined to try to, to, to write that. So I think... Um, I come at it from that perspective, but I also feel like, as a white person in particular, I have an extra responsibility to approach um, with humility. You know, the first thing I did was I asked King's friends and colleagues, um, would they, did, did we need a new book? Would they help me if I chose to write a new book? 
And then I went and asked a lot of the leading scholars of African-American history, are you working on a King biography? Um, why hasn't there been one in such a long time? Do you think we need a new one? And if I began work on it, would you help me? And as I began gathering documents, I immediately found sources of archival material that nobody knew was out there. Thousands of pages of documents that belonged to King's personal archivist had been stored at the Schomburg Library in Harlem, and nobody had opened the boxes yet. Um, unpublished um, autobiography written by Martin Luther King's father that nobody had seen. Even the King children didn't know it existed until I found it. So I went to a lot of these scholars, and I said, I'm putting everything I find into, um, into Google Drive, and I'm sharing it. Read it. It's all yours. Use it for whatever you want. Use it for your research purposes. But please tell me what you find in there that you think is interesting, and let's compare notes. Let's, you know, help me learn, because you've been studying this material all your lives, and I'm new. Will you help me? And they, we, we, we really came together, and I, off, I ended up sharing chapters. So Peniel Joseph, who teaches at the University of Texas, wrote a biography of Stokely Carmichael. I said, can I send you my chapters about the Mississippi um, March and... Um, uh, Louis Baldwin, who is probably the world's leading theologian on, on King, um, who teaches at Vanderbilt, I said, can I show you my chapters that touch on theology? And they would send me notes back, and we would discuss. And so I had this really strong support network around me to make me feel like, to help me overcome my imposter syndrome, uh, which I think every writer has, every biographer has. Whether Even on Lou Gehrig, I feel a sense of, of imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to write Lou Gehrig's biography? I never met him. I don't know him. You can't really get into the head of anyone um, and know what their, really, what their thoughts and feelings are. You have to just do the work to come as mm -hmm. close as you can. In fact, as you said last night, your research was actually aided by an unlikely person, Donald Trump. Yes. How, how did that happen? So um, Donald Trump, as you may know, is something of a conspiracy nut. He likes uh, these... Things, and he um, was very interested in the JFK assassination documents, so he ordered them to be released. Um, a lot of the classified information on the investigation of the Kennedy assassination, Trump ordered it to be released. And to manage the, the flow, um, the archives and the FBI decided to release um, thousands of pages every, one, every year over the last four years. And what Trump didn't realize is that he was also releasing the assassination uh, investigation reports on MLK. So thousands of pages of FBI wiretaps of, of King, not just, about, not just related to the assassination, but the surveillance of King um, in regard to his... At first, the FBI thought he might have connections to Communist Party members, and then when they saw that he was not remotely interested in communism... They became obsessed with his personal life, with his sex life, and they were tapping his home phone, his office phone. Um, they were putting bugs in his hotel rooms. So thousands of these pages of, of these transcripts of the King conversations have been released the last three years, and um, very few scholars have bothered to go through them all page by page, but I'm one of the few who did. And, um, and they're important for a couple of reasons. One is that they tell us more about King, um, including his flaws. But we also see, and so yes, we see him on the phone talking to, to women who are not Coretta and clearly flirting with them. And um, that's disappointing, and it's also kind of sad to hear how lonely he sounds. But um, it also has the effect of, of humanizing him. We hear how 
hard he's, he's struggling, when, when people are losing faith in him, when he begins speaking out on northern racism and, he, and funding for his organization declines because he's attacking the people who are writing checks. And his, um, his colleagues are saying, maybe you shouldn't talk about northern racism as much. Maybe you should stop talking about the Vietnam War so much because it's, it's, it's distracting from our core mission of voter registration in the South. And King is saying, and you can, hear, you can read these transcripts, talking to his closest friends and advisors saying, I can't do that. Don't you, don't you know who I am? This is, comes from the Bible. This is not about politics. This is what I believe, what I've been preaching my whole life. And he has to explain this to his best friends. So the FBI has given us a gift in that way. But the, finally, the most important thing about those FBI transcripts, I think, um, is that they show that our government was using, was weaponizing King's personal life. They were weaponizing his, his sins and using it to try to destroy him, to break up the civil rights movement, even at one point urging him to commit suicide. They took a, a compilation of the tapes um, from his hotel rooms. They mailed it to his home, hoping that Coretta would hear it would divorce him, his reputation would be shattered. And the letter that accompanied that tape said, the only way out for you essentially is suicide. And that's the, the links that our government was going to to try to destroy one of our great moral leaders. Yes, he had moral flaws, but he's one of our great moral leaders. And I think, you know, we need to ask ourselves why, what motivated, not just J. Edgar Hoover, you know, Attorney General Robert Kennedy signed the authorization for those wiretaps. Other attorney generals reauthorized it. Um, both Kennedy, President Kennedy and President Johnson knew about it and condoned it. And in fact, LBJ encouraged it. I found a memo from LBJ um, in, in, in telling the FBI that they should leak these tapes to the press. So the presidents themselves were, were complicit. And I think the answer to why this became an obsession of the government, why they felt like they needed to destroy King, is that they, they thought he posed a threat to the status quo and that King had the power, and, the, and it began after the March on Washington. That's when they began tapping his phones. Why would that set them off? Because King presented an opportunity, a vision, for this country to move past some of its racism, to move past some of its segregation, and to really rethink what kind of a country we could be, and that would mean sharing power. And why would the people in power want to share it when they've been getting by for so long keeping it to themselves? And, and I think that's ultimately what, what fuels the, um, the FBI surveillance campaign. Yeah. Now, one of the many things that I got from your book was a new and deeper, much deeper appreciation for Coretta King. You've talked about, yes, he had all kinds of affairs. Yes, she knew about them. And yet she never as far as I could read, thought about divorce, caused her to in any way lose her enthusiasm for everything he was doing, you know, on the racial justice front. So do you think Coretta has gotten her historical due for, for what she did to cause him to have the, the influence and the, and the power that he had? No, Coretta has not gotten her due. Um, and... One of my goals for this book, my number one goal was to provide a more human portrait of King. Um, but just after that, one of my important goals was to provide a more nuanced portrait of Coretta, too, because she was a warrior. She was ferocious. 
uh, steel magnolia, as, as Maya Angelou called her. And um, I think that's why King was attracted to her in the first place, why he married her. You know, King was dating a lot of women when he met Coretta. He was almost always dating more than one woman. And, um, but when he met Coretta, he said, you're the one. And I think it's because she had more experience than he did as an activist at that point. She'd been to Antioch College and been involved in all kinds of protests. She'd been to the Progressive Party National Convention. King hadn't done anything um, as an activist at that point in his life. And I think Coretta showed him you know, a model, showed him a path, and she remained a stalwart, you know, even though he would not really support her ambitions to be more involved in the movement. He thought she should stay home and take care of the kids. She nevertheless, you know, continued to do everything she could, and she pushed him to be more aggressive. She's the one who said, you know, when, when, when King wins the Nobel Peace Prize, she said, we have a greater responsibility than ever now to speak out on issues beyond race. Um, she was just always, you know, that, that, that little push in the back to him, and I think he absolutely appreciated that, even if he didn't always treat her well. Yeah. Now, another central character in the book, besides Coretta, is Martin Luther King's father, Martin Luther King Sr. And I would describe it, they had a, quote, up and down relationship. His father was also a very prominent minister in Atlanta. But how did King Sr. help and how did he harm his son? Martin Luther King Sr., Daddy King, as everybody called him, um, was one of the most interesting and I think one of the bravest figures in American history. We don't give him enough credit to that generation that came before the civil rights movement because Daddy King was born on a farm as a sharecropper until he was 12, 13 years old. He was working, um, picking cotton with his parents on a farm in Stockbridge, Georgia. There's now a Walmart on that land. Um, and um, he saw that his parents had no chance of, of ever getting off that land, ever profiting from it, because whatever they, they earned in, in cotton, uh, the landlord charged them just that much, or maybe a little more, so they stayed in perpetual debt. And he figured, and he saw what it did to his father. His father became an alcoholic and became violent. His mother remained a Bible-loving, God-fearing woman, and um, King, Daddy King decided there was no way that he was ever going to get anywhere on that farm, so he just he took his one pair of shoes he tied him over his shoulder and walked away from Stockbridge toward Atlanta and really reinvented himself. This is at age 13. And he starts working on a railroad and then starts teaching himself to read and write and becomes a preacher and, and marries into another preacher's family, marries Alberta Williams, whose, whose father is the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he just, in the course of you know, 10 years, makes this unbelievable leap out of dirt dirt poor um, living conditions to you know, becoming the, the young assistant pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church and makes it possible for Martin Luther King to be Martin Luther King. At the same time, he's a difficult man. He's really domineering. He's, um, he's, he's violent at times, um, has a real temper. And Martin Luther King grows up, really, it's fascinating because he's our greatest protest leader and he's afraid of conflict because of his relationship with his father. He cannot say no to anybody. He has a very difficult time standing up to people. So when he meets somebody like the president or even you know, Roy Wilkins, who's the head of the NAACP, who's an older gentleman, um, King is, is, is always kind of afraid to speak in the room with these older leaders because he's, he doesn't like to get into arguments. And, it's, and to me, it's it makes me appreciate Martin Luther King even more because he's willing to put his 
life on the line. He's willing to go to jail. He's willing to face these, these horrible racists. He's willing to, he knows he's facing violence. He's facing possible, you know, death every time he gets up in the morning. And certainly when he's carted off to jail 29 times in his life and put in state prisons where black men frequently disappear, he's willing to take on that kind of a, a conflict, even though it goes against his very nature because he really doesn't like saying no to people. It's part of the re- that's the reason he's in Memphis. He can't say no. He's busy. He's got other things to do. But his friend James Lawson calls and says, we need you for the sanitation workers' strike. And King can't say no. In Memphis in 68, where he got killed. killed. Now, Daddy King told his son, quote, racial injustice must be fought, but with patience. Upon reaching adulthood, Martin Luther King Jr. kind of rejected the patience concept. So, so what was behind that? Well, Daddy King, like a lot of parents and many of us in the room, can really wanted to protect his son. And he saw that he was putting his life in danger. The very first time his house was bombed in Montgomery, Daddy King and Odie um, Scott, Coretta's father, drove and converged, got there at the same time, like as soon as they heard about the bombing and said, you're out of here. You know, we're taking you home. This, someone else can lead the Montgomery bus boycott. You guys got a baby to take care of. And King and Coretta said, no, we're not going anywhere. And King was deeply frustrated, not just with his father's tendency to urge caution and patience, but especially with white moderates, with religious leaders who said, we're getting there. Be patient. Um, you've made so much progress. Stop pushing. You know, you're, you're just going to make enemies. You're just going to enrage the people who are against you. You know, work with us. And King said, no. We can't wait. We have to put everything we've got into this now. You can't ask people who've been treated this way for 300 years to be a little more, to wait, just wait a little longer. And, and his, that's the, what the letter from Birmingham jail's about. It's a, it's a letter to the, the, the ministers, the white ministers, who wrote a letter they thought was in support of the, of the protests in Birmingham, saying, give us time. And King says, no, we've been hearing that long enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned, one of his most important traits was his commitment to nonviolence, which included a willingness to absorb violence, as you said last night. And one of his mantras throughout his life was, quote, unearned suffering is redemptive. So uh, where did he get, even at a young age, you say he would resist retaliating when his sister would hit him or things like that. Where did this commitment to nonviolence that began it as a child and lasted, where did that come from? The Bible. <laughs> um, you want to expand? <laughs> Do I have to? No. You know, it's funny. I, was, I did an event at the National Cathedral with the Bishop of Washington, D.C., and she said, um, I've heard you say that several times. You always just say the Bible. And I think that um, it's... It, it's it's one thing for me as a bishop, as a as a religious leader, to say that, but when a white Jewish journalist says it, it's extra cool. Um, <laughs> and I just think it's obvious that you know King is is memorizing the Bible before he can read. He's he's in church not just every Sunday, but probably like you know five days out of the week. And his father, his grandfather, his great grandfather were preachers, and he actually believes this. He believes that he's supposed to 
model his life after the model after the life of Jesus Christ. And so when he turns the other cheek, it's just that he actually believes what he's what he's been teaching and preaching all these years. And and he truly and then he discovers that it has special power for black people in America to show that we've been suffering so long and we'll suffer more to show you how much we love this country, how much we believe in the principles in the Bible, these things that we should all be able, like it's pretty hard to argue with when you're saying this is about the Constitution, this is about the Bible, and we, the people who've been treated the worst, are going to show you how to fulfill the promises of these founding documents. That's powerful. So unfortunately, he discovers that that's what it takes to get the nation's attention. That's what it takes to get particular white Americans to notice that black people have been suffering all this time, is that you have to see a picture of a dog attacking an innocent, peaceful protester in in Birmingham. You have to see children, children, children's bodies being scattered on the side of the road by water cannons. And that's what it takes to get civil rights legislation passed in this country. And what King is saying, we're willing to do that because we love this country that much and we're willing to die for, what, for, for these beliefs. And there's a lot of people in this room who from time to time are called to give speeches and obviously would like to be better at it. King was a preaching prodigy. He gave his first major sermon at age 18. He became an ordained minister at age 19. And early on, his words not only resonated with African-Americans, but also whites. So give a short explanation for how he was so good at oratory beginning at such a young age. Well, as I said, he was raised in the church. So he grew up and in a neighborhood where there were a lot of black churches and he could hop from one to the other and compare preaching styles, you know, kind of like, you know, we could imitate back in the day, like the batting stances of our favorite ball players. He could imitate all the preachers in the neighborhood. And, um, and he decided very early on, and, and they would, he and his brother and his sister would, would like bap, pr- pretend to baptize the pets. They would do funeral services for like worms and insects that they squashed. And King, even like late in his life, one of his favorite jokes was um, to preach the, um, the eulogies for his friends. Like you know, they'd be driving in the car at night and, um, and he'd say, you want to hear what I'm going to say at your eulogy and <laughs> at your funeral? And he would give this hilarious <laughs> eulogy cutting up about all their, 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 their foibles and their flaws. Um, he was absolutely a natural. And um, he found his voice. And I think this is really like maybe you may have hit on it when you said that he, his, his words resonated with black and white audiences. I think he found his voice, his superpower, um, when he realized that he could reach both audiences with the same words, with the same speech, with the same style, because he was raised, you know, black Southern preachers from Atlanta. His parents are from the sticks in Georgia. He, he, people connected, black audiences, churchgoers, Baptists, they, they, they responded and he knew how to touch them, but he'd also been educated in the North. He read philosophy. He read history. He could elevate these sermons and throw in a little mix of everything, country and and, and, and Ivy League stuff, and, and it was a magic formula. And I think you know, we got so lucky that he was chosen and nominated at the last minute, really, to lead the Montgomery bus boycott, and the nation discovered him there. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that anybody else could have 
from that time and place could have emerged as a national figure the way he did that really captured the imagination of the country? Well, and as you mentioned in his first major speech slash sermon in Montgomery, uh, which was a game changer right after Rosa Parks uh, uh, being arrested in this, uh, he said he felt God's power within him. He felt he was God's voice had become his voice. What's your response when you read about somebody who thinks he's channeling God and, and using his voice? How, how does that impact you, or what's your response to that? You know, when I used to hear that, I would always be a little skeptical, like, sounds a little bit like mumbo-jumbo to me because I've never heard God's voice. But I was talking to Reverend James Lawson about that, who was one of King's closest friends and knew him all the way through his career, and he's the one who invited King to come to Memphis. Um, and, and he said, it's not like that. It's a calling the same way like my doctor felt a calling to become a cancer surgeon after her mother died of cancer. It's a calling deep within you that just resonates through your whole body that you know you're doing the right thing. And he said, for someone like me as a pastor, for someone like his friend Martin, as he called him, it wasn't like the sky opened up and, you know, the, the hand of God came down. It's just something you feel deep within you that you are doing what you were meant to be doing. And if you believe truly in God, then yes, that's what God wants you to do. And he explained it to me in much more, you know, understandable terms. And I think, so King actually says a couple times that he heard the voice of God, but it's an internal voice. It's, uh, it's something that only he can really explain how it feels. But when, and maybe we've all experienced moments like this where you just rise to do something you didn't know you could do. Mm-hmm. And King, before he had to give his first big speech at the Montgomery bus boycott, um, had a panic attack. He couldn't breathe. He had 20 minutes to prepare the speech. 10 minutes, he said he had a panic attack. Couldn't breathe, couldn't think, had to rush out the door. And he said, God gave him the words because it came. And, and really, if you look at that speech, December 5th, 1955, it really becomes the blueprint for his entire career because he says that we are just trying to square the Bible and the Constitution. We're trying to make society that we're living in today live up to the promises that, that we find. And if we're wrong, the Constitution is wrong. If we're wrong, the Bible is wrong. And we know those things are not wrong. So we have to make it right. And we have to do the work to make it right. Mm-hmm. And that's the same message he would be given for the rest of his life, really. Well, until Martin Luther King came along, the civil rights movement didn't take off in large part because too many Americans, particularly white Americans, saw it as a political issue. And his success and the success of the civil rights movement came from transforming it from a political issue to a moral issue. So talk about how he achieved that between 55 and, of course, his death in 68. But by 64, we had the Civil Rights Act. How do you make that transition and and refocus people to, to to the moral issue in play? That's a great question, and I don't know, because it's, it's really never been done before. If you think about you know, the great changers in American history and world history, they're often people with political power or with money or with weapons, the threat of violence. And for someone to do that, to, do, to become probably the greatest change agent in American history outside of, a pre, outside of the Oval Office, um, to do that just on moral power, on the sense that, like, we're trying to get this country to do the right thing is extraordinary. 
And he did it by example. You know, as we said earlier, he did it by showing he was willing to sacrifice, by showing he was willing to suffer, by calling attention to the plight of people who we had taken for granted, who a lot of people had never thought about as, as people with, who, who were suffering, um, and overcoming the fact that, as I said earlier, there was a vested interest in keeping the status quo, that when you've got power, your natural instinct is to keep power. Um, and, and King had, he suffered as a result of his, the fact that he was a moral leader. He didn't really understand how to play politics. And politicians that he was dealing with, like Kennedy and Johnson, didn't really understand King either, because they're speaking different languages. They can't understand why King doesn't play politics. Like, you've got access to the White House, and you're not really using it the way they would expect you to. Um, my favorite example of that is, you know, King goes to Los Angeles when um, the riots begin in 1966, early 66, and um, his advisors are saying, don't go. You don't know Los Angeles. You don't know what you're getting into there. It's chaos. They're not going to respect you. Um, you're not from there. But he goes anyway, and he calls LBJ, and we, all of LBJ's phone calls were recorded. We, the audio tape is available. You can listen to it online. Um, and you can hear the conversation, and LBJ is so grateful that King is there and genuinely asking, what do we need to do to fix this? And I don't mean just to like stop the, the, the fires from burning. What do we need to do to address the fundamental issues here? And there's this great r- rapport, it seems like, between them. And that's the moment that most people who deal with power would have said to LBJ, I am here for you. I am all in. You know, here's what we need. Um, I want to see this happen. I want to see that happen. And by the way, could you get J. Edgar Hoover off my back? (laughs) That's what most of us would have done, right? Never even occurs to King because he's, he's a moral leader. He's doing what's right. And if the president can help, thank you. I'd love to have your help. He's not asking for anything in return. Frankly, I think LBJ might have respected him more because LBJ was a political beast. LBJ was the master deal maker. Um, they just didn't understand each other. And then when King began speaking out on the Vietnam War for the very same reason, because it's the morally right thing to do, um, LBJ takes it personally. Like, why is this guy out to sink me? <laughs> well, let's talk about the relationship with Kennedy. You know, here's King. He's achieves national stature in December 1955. So it's about 1960, presidential election, Nixon versus Kennedy, just as with Jackie Robinson, both of them wanted King on their side. So talk about uh, King and Kennedy, the start of their relationship, particularly leading up to Election Day and the famous phone call to Coretta that uh, I'd say was instrumental in, in moving the relationship in a much more positive direction. Right. Um, the, as you know, the election was the closest in history at that point, and um, most Most people believe that Kennedy would have lost if not for the increased black turnout. And that black turnout may have been as a result of the fact that Kennedy called uh, Coretta Scott King when when King was in jail to express his sympathies. And the word got out and um, a lot of black activists um, began a campaign to spread the word that Kennedy was their man. And uh, again, King could have called in a favor and, and he was very disappointed that Kennedy did not really deliver what he felt like was owed to the black community, that 
Kennedy was being very slow to introduce civil rights legislation because he was still afraid that he would lose more votes in the South than he would gain by doing that. So he's making political calculations. And again, King can't really understand that. What, why does politics need to come into this? You know, um, you, you believe that civil rights is the right thing to do. You believe in this legislation. You, you owe your place in office to these voters. Why aren't you just delivering? And King has to push and push and push. And it's really not until Birmingham, when Kennedy sees the dogs attacking um, protesters and sees the water cannons, you know, um, that he realizes he has to get off the fence. He has to do something about this. Um, the King was really frustrated with that. Mm -hmm. Now, during the Kennedy presidency, long about 1962, all of a sudden, King's nonviolent approach that's been so successful is being challenged by Malcolm X and others who aren't in favor of nonviolence, who look at it differently. So talk about the relationship between King and Malcolm X and that tension between which way the, the movement toward civil rights and racial justice went because of that essentially fracture. Yeah, this gets to also the issue of how much pressure King was under and how difficult his life was because as he emerges as the leader of the, the, the leading voice for black America, of course, there are going to be some people who feel like he's been co-opted. He's too conservative. They want to push harder. Um, they don't approve of his nonviolent tactics. They feel like if we're attacked, we should, we should fight back. And some people, including Malcolm X, um, others come along a little bit later, like Stokely Carmichael, use this to their advantage. And, and even, you know, even SNCC, which arises out of the student protests, uh, the, the, um, the lunch counter protests and, and, and the, the um, freedom rides, they feel like King is, a, is an old fuddy-duddy. They call him DeLord, uh, as if he's this old, he's at this point like 32 years old, um, but he's too conservative for them. And, um, and they're constantly pushing him to get more involved, to be more aggressive. And King, again, it goes back to the Bible. He says, I'm not going to preach violence. Uh, I'm not going to use the word black power even because that implies violence. Um, but what I love about King is that he's, he's still listening to these younger people. He's listening um, to Malcolm X. And he's aware that Malcolm X is using him. He's aware that Stokely Carmichael is using him because by calling King and Uncle Tom, it makes you look braver and more radical and it attracts a certain faction to you. Um, and, and, and King recognized that. He even says to Stokely Carmichael, I know you're using me. It's okay. You do what you got to do. Um, and, and he's open-minded and learning from them. And, and, and you start to see his positions evolving over time as he talks to people like Carmichael. Uh, but he still, but he sticks to, you know, nonviolence all the way. Mm -hmm. So 1963, you talk about Birmingham, the fire hoses on the kids, the dogs attacking the protesters, the letter from Birmingham jail, the impact it had on Kennedy such that he goes on national television and uh, advocates a, civil a new civil rights bill, which he'd been reluctant to do before. And not long after that is the March on Washington with the I Have a Dream speech. Kennedy pulled back and didn't attend the March on Washington, wasn't there for the I Have a Dream speech. What was going on in Kennedy's mind, particularly after being so moved by Birmingham and, and introducing the civil rights speech? Why would he not embrace the March on Washington in person? Well, first he tried to get King to cancel it. He thought it was going to damage the chances of passing civil rights legislation because 
Um, think about it. If you're a white person and you've been watching the civil rights movement on TV, what do you see? You see violence. Um, and he thought that, well, having 100, 200,000 people come together in Washington, D.C., nothing good can come from that. And 70% of Americans were opposed to the March on Washington going into it. Um, and mostly because they were just afraid. You put that many young black people together, black and white, um, doesn't matter, something bad's going to happen, and they're going to be counter-protesters, something. So there was a lot of fear about that, and Kennedy watched it on TV from the White House, um, hedging his bets. It was the first time that he'd actually heard King speak. And um, when King and the other, uh, other speakers went to the White House after the event, um, Kennedy reached out his hand and shake his hand and said, I have a dream. And um, the, um, then he also, you know, we have a recording of that meeting too. And, and um, Kennedy says to, the, uh, to King and to the others who are gathered there, you know, you're really doing wonderful work, but, you know, why can't the black community be more like the Jewish community and just lift itself up? And um, why can't you get your kids to, you know, stay in school and go to, and he says it a couple times and then finally, and King again doesn't challenge him, but Roy Wilkins says, Mr. President, you worry about yourself. We'll take care of ourselves. Um, and it finally cuts him off. Um, but I think um, that moment, you know, is really in many ways the pinnacle of King's career because it's the moment where the whole country, even JFK, starts to like wake up and to see that we can move past this period of, of, of hatred. We can get beyond, like there's a moment of hope there that is really visceral, that even you know, millions of people watching at home on TV in Iowa see that this beautiful image of, of racial harmony, and maybe this could be the future of our country. And unfortunately, you know, there's a backlash because some people can't handle that, that kind of hope. And you know, a couple things happen. Two days after the March on Washington, the FBI issues, the order, issues a memo saying, King is becoming too powerful, and we must now rank him as the greatest threat in terms of race to this country. So the FBI declares this a threatening scene, this picture that most of us would view as a beautiful one. And then what happens a couple weeks after that is the bombing of the 16th Street Church in Birmingham. So, you know, a lot of white Southerners were saying, no, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to go for that dream of Dr. King's. Well, let's talk about the dream speech, because obviously it's one of the most famous speeches in American history. And I think the story of how it unfolded in terms of, quote, the first part compared to the second part, uh, explain uh, how it came to be, which, again, I think was a God thing. Yeah, it was it goes back to what we were saying earlier about King just being a natural preacher and having it so deeply ingrained in his, in his soul. So he wrote, he got to his hotel the night before the March on Washington, two in the morning, and starts writing his speech. And he writes this speech that's pretty much a policy speech, but it's really bold. It talks about police brutality, talks about reparations, it talks about the fact that the government has made a promise to black people that it never fulfilled, and we're here today to, to cash that check. Um, and then he gets to the end of it, and he's, got, he's, he's been assigned 10 minutes to speak, and he just decides that he's not done yet. And he's been reading this speech. He looks down at his page about 30 times as he's reading the part that he wrote the night before. And then he says, and today I have a dream. And that's the moment he decides to take the audience to church with him. You know, he's going to do what he does best. And this comes, like we said earlier, he just feels it. 
he feels like the moment is right. And he's given this dream speech a couple times before, something he's comfortable with, and he never looks down at the page again. And he gives one of the, maybe the greatest speech in American history, completely off the top of his head and from, from deep within his soul. And that's the speech that really captures the American imagination and, and you know, changes King's life. We should remember the radical part of the speech that came before it, though. And I wish that our schools would teach the first half of the speech as well as they teach the second half of the speech. I think the, first, the second half, the dream part, is great for the little kids. And when they get to middle school, they should be able to handle the first part of the speech. We need, really need to teach both. Mm-hmm. So three months after the I Have a Dream speech, Kennedy's assassinated. So obviously we have a new president. How did that impact the civil rights movement, that changing of the person in the Oval Office? You know, who knows what would have happened? I mean, Kennedy was committed to that legislation, and I think we probably would have seen it anyway. But LBJ is a fantastic advocate for social justice in America, for for civil rights, um, for poverty-fighting programs. Um, You know, he uses this opportunity. You know, he takes office with kind of a carte blanche to do what he wants because he's um, coming into office under such tragic conditions, and he sees this as an opportunity to and, and wants to make it is priority to pass civil rights legislation and to pass, you know, this great society, the anti-poverty programs. And, and King becomes an important ally. And, and that's really um, one of the great moments in American history in, in those next couple of years when, when LBJ um, helps lead and sign this important legislation is, is key. And that's part of the legacy of the assassination, too, because... Johnson had that opportunity because of his unusual circumstances by which he came to office. Mm -hmm. So the Civil Rights Act gets passed early July 1964. Uh, How does that impact the civil rights movement? How does that cause schools to become integrated more rapidly or not? How does that impact the bringing down of, of Jim Crow? And what was King's role in moving that act into action? and not just words on the page of a new law. Well, the law was, was important because it had, it had teeth. You know, it, it, there, was, there was an enforcement um, component. And you start to really see voting rights. Uh, you start to see voter registration coming up dramatically. You start to now, you know, for a long time, Brown versus Board of Education was, was a decade earlier, and we still hadn't seen much integration in the schools in the South. Um, schools and, and, and cities and states were fighting it. But the Civil Rights Act puts more um, enforcement power behind a lot of that, and you start to really see a lot of improvement. Um, and, and also, Kennedy did a very good job of, in, in, as he was pushing that legislation, of, of really, he and Bobby Kennedy worked very hard to do grassroots work, roots work to get communities to get businesses to start integrating before they were made to by the law. And it was starting to make progress. And, and King was really encouraged just to stick to the South because you had the potential now to really use that legislation to increase voter registration, to get more black candidates elected to office, to tip the balance of power in Congress and state houses, state legislatures. But King wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't prepared to just stick to the South because by then he felt like he'd been saying all along and people hadn't been listening that Northern racism was was in many ways just as bad, just better camouflaged, and that northern segregation was just as pernicious and better camouflaged, and he'd seen it 
over and over again in Chicago and Philadelphia and New York and Los Angeles. He'd seen you know, the white flight. He'd seen the school systems that were segregated, um, not by law, but by custom. And again, going back to the Bible, he felt like it would be hypocritical for him not to call that out. Why should he just call it out in Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery when it was just as bad in Long Island and in Chicago and, um, and in Boston? So he sees that the civil rights legislation is making gains. It's really helping in the South, but there's more demand for his, his attention in the North, and he begins to shift his focus a little bit. And so what kind of success or lack of success did he have as he shifted his focus to the North? It didn't go so well. Uh, he came to my hometown, Chicago, and actually moved there and um, rented an apartment in a, uh, in a terrible neighborhood to try to bring attention to the, the conditions in which so many poor people were living and um, also called attention to the segregated school system in Chicago and um, wanted Chicago to be the model, wanted Chicago to show the nation just as he'd shown what has was happening in Birmingham. He wanted to wake people up, but there was a problem. And the problem was largely that the white news media was less likely, less interested in showing those stories because this was their home turf. They thought King didn't know what he was talking about. He's not from here. And um, they're happy to dump on the South. They yeah. want to dump on themselves. It's absolutely true that um, when they, you know, it's easy to come down and, and paint, you know, Bull Connor as the bad guy, but the Chicago Tribune is less likely to take that approach when Mayor Daley is who they're writing about. And Daley was very effective in, in squashing King's efforts. So King comes to Chicago, um, he's attacked, he's hit in the back of the head with a brick or a rock. Um, he calls the protesters, um, the, the counter-protesters in Chicago, the most racist people he's ever encountered, that they could teach the people of, of Alabama something about racism. And he spends all this time, months and months in Chicago, and gives the mayor a set of demands, um, really concrete reforms that would integrate schools, that would pr improve hiring of minorities, that would um, improve housing conditions and integrate housing. And Daly agrees to all of them and then you know, throws it in the garbage bin as soon as King leaves his office. And, you know, my kids are, and, I'm, and I are still living with the consequences of that because Chicago's maybe the most segregated city in the country. And, you know, King offered us a, offered us a shot at fixing that, and we just... We, we, we ignored him. Now, during this, starting in 65, he goes, focuses on the North, moves to Chicago. At the same time, he's becoming probably the most outspoken person in America opposing the Vietnam War. And for the remainder of his life, it seems like he is as much in the forefront of the anti-war movement as he was the civil rights movement. And as you mentioned, that obviously impacted his relationship with Lyndon Johnson. And you also mentioned that it was inspired by the Nobel Peace Prize, that he's supposed to be an advocate for peace. So talk about the impact of his efforts on the anti-war movement. So you're absolutely right. King you know, was, was already losing popularity. You know, in the early 60s, these Gallup polls would ask who was the most admired, admired men in the world. I and mean, they probably said men. They didn't even think that women would ever appear on the list. Um, and it was still Time's Man of the Year. It's still called Time's Man of the Year, right? And um, King was usually in the top three or four. 
in the early 60s. You know, it'd be like the president, it'd be Winston Churchill. Billy Graham. Billy Graham and King. And then by the mid-60s, he's not even in the top 10. And um, that's because he's refusing to just stick to what, you know, stay in your lane, Dr. King, you know, stick, stick to the South, stick to voting rights. He's coming North. He's getting beat up there. He's losing ground politically. Um, he's seen as a failure. And then he sp- starts speaking out in the Vietnam War at the time the war is still popular. And he says it's just the right thing to do. And, and as you said, he's, he's won the Nobel Peace Prize. And yet people are saying, you know, you're not qualified to speak on, on Vietnam. Um, you, you don't know anything about international affairs. Never mind that he's got a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and I think it's important to remember that part of the reason that King is getting beat up in the press is that, and he may not even really, it took me a long time to even think about this, that the FBI has been leaking to reporters all over the country the sex tapes. So he's, the reporters haven't been printing the stories about King's personal life, and they pat themselves on the back for respecting his privacy, but it's affecting the way he's treated in the press. And when King gives his speech um, on, on, against, coming out against the Vietnam War, Every major newspaper in the country, every editorial says, what the hell is he doing? He does not know what he's talking about. Um, And you got to remember that for years now, everybody in the newsroom, every major newspaper editor has been gossiping about King and feeling like he's been morally compromised because the FBI has been leaking this material. So he's taking an extra beating. And of course, you know, LBJ is taking this very personally um, because... The war is haunting him as well. So it's just making King's life harder. Um, and yet he's, once again, feels like he's doing the right thing. And he could have, let's you know, keep in mind, he could have stepped back. He could have said, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I've been doing this for 10 years. It's time to let someone else lead. Um, I've got books to write. I'm going to go teach some classes. He would have been entitled. Nobody would have criticized him for that. Um, but he felt like he had this moral responsibility. And... The Bible said that he, you know, that materialism and militarism, racism and poverty are wrong, and he's been given this platform. People are expecting him to lead, and he's going to lead. He still sees himself as a preacher trying to save the soul of the nation. I want to close mind of the program before we go to Q and A with something I do for just a few authors, but I, I want Jonathan to read the last page. Uh, of his book because it really sets the tone in my mind for the impact of the book. I think it will also inspire you to pick up this very thick book and devour it the way I did because the message is so strong. So, Jonathan, read that part. But in hallowing King, we have hollowed him. From Montgomery to Chicago... Along those streets named Martin Luther King Drive and Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue and Martin Luther King Jr. Highway and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, poverty and segregation rates remain much higher than local and national averages. In those schools named for King, and in almost every school in America, King's life and lessons are smoothed and polished beyond recognition. Young people hear his dream of brotherhood and wish and his wish for children to be judged by the content of their character, but not his call for fundamental change in the nation's character, not his cry for an end to the triple evils of materialism, militarism, and racism. As King's friend Harry Belafonte told me, 
In none of the history books of this country do you read about radical heroes. On my most recent visit to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington, D.C., in the spring of 2022, I found none of King's books for sale in the gift shop. Our simplified celebration of King comes at a cost. It saps the strength of his philosophical and intellectual contributions. It undercuts his power to inspire change. Even after Americans elected a black man as president, and after that president, Barack Obama, placed a bust of King in the Oval Office, the nation remains racked with racism, ethno-nationalism, cultural division, residential and educational segregation, economic inequality, violence, and a fading sense of hope that government or anyone will ever fix these problems. Where do we go from here? In spite of the way America treated him, King still had faith when asked that question. Today, his words might help us make our way through these troubled times, but only if we actually read them, only if we embrace the complicated king, the flawed king, the human king, the radical king, only if we see and hear him clearly again as America saw and heard him once before. Our very survival, he wrote, depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. Amen. That is so powerful. Do we have any questions? Yes, Tosha. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation, Talmadge and Jonathan. My question is, as we look at where we are now, and you talk about, you know, threats of voter registration that King fought against. We talk about police brutality and social injustice, and we're still in the throes of some of that right now. So can you talk a little bit about, and I know you don't want to speak for Dr. King, but where do you think he would be right now with the political and moral lines more blurred now, I think, than ever? Yeah, I think he, I know I don't have to speak for King, I can't, but he speaks for himself because so many of the words he said were, were warnings. You know, the sermon he was planning to give um, the next week, uh, if he hadn't been assassinated, was called America May Go to Hell. He felt like we were going down the wrong path, that we were losing ground, that there was every time gains were made, there was a backlash. And that's what we're seeing now. I think, you know, a lot of what we're seeing today is a backlash, sometimes inspired just by the fact that we had a black president. And I think the only thing I can say is, you know, what King would do. And I asked, you know, Harry Belafonte and I asked John Lewis this question. They said he would be doing the same thing. He'd be putting his life on the line. He'd be marching. He'd be calling on the principles that we should all believe in about patriotism and, and, and religion to find our, our common goals and to treat each other like, like brothers and sisters. Um, that's, this, I think the same message applies, but it does sometimes seem like we're losing ground, that um, we are more divided even. I don't know. They, when I asked that, the old, the old wise men and women, they said, no, we're not more divided now. It was a lot scarier and a lot more hostile then than it is today. So I hope... I hope that we, we, we actually, the long arc of, 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 of history is bending toward justice. But, you know, I think the point is we have to keep bending. It doesn't bend by itself. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yes, Dale. 
Jonathan, you talked about uh, that Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech a few times earlier. Can you talk about that? Yeah, he gave it once um, a few years earlier in the South, I think it was South Carolina, and then just a few weeks, maybe a couple months before the March on Washington, he gave it in Detroit. And at that time was the largest gathering of black protesters in American history, 100,000 people at Cobo Hall, and there were loudspeakers set up outside the hall so people on the street could Dale's hear. Dale's from Michigan. He wanted to hear you talk about that. And I will point out that the, gov the white governor and the white mayor um, supported that march, endorsed it, and, um, and participated. So there was a feeling of real community um, in, in Michigan at the time and support for that, for that movement. And um, as, a, as a historical note, um, Motown recorded the, the speech. You can buy the record on, on eBay. Um, and, and so you can hear how the, the first I Have a Dream speech differs slightly from the second I Have a Dream speech. And the, um, Motown was planning to re also recorded the March on Washington, and they were going to make an, a record out of that. Um, but King, um, got, they got into a legal dispute over who had the rights to it. But the, the important piece of that, this is a great piece of trivia, um, a lot of people think that Mahalia Jackson shouted out and tell him about the dream, Martin, because she thought the first half of the speech was a little boring, and she wanted him to do the dream thing that she'd heard in Detroit. And I wondered if that was true, because you can't hear Mahalia on the tape. You, can hear, say that. you can't hear her say that. But you can hear her. She's sitting right under the microphone. And you can hear her throughout King's speech saying, yes, yes, that's right. And so I got a hold of the master recording for Motown. And you can hear Mahalia say, tell him about the dream, Martin, after he's already started on, in the dream portion. So she was not, I, she does not deserve the credit for inspiring the I Have a Dream. She was just echoing it. She was saying, yes, that's right. Keep going. Um, so I'm, I'm, I am happy that I corrected the record on that. You did correct the record, because I've been giving Mahalia Jackson credit for years. So yeah. now you just Mahalia, corrected me. Mahalia never took credit. In her, in her memoir, she talks about being there that day, and she says nothing about, about I Have a Dream, that she had anything to do with it. And, and I think that King deserves all the credit. Okay. There was another question. I thought. Yes. Hi there. Hi there. Um, so, uh, you know, King's connection to the metaphysical and the divine um, really allows him to sort of zoom out and and see oppression and racism um, as a symptom of 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 being human, um, and ha and that enable his capacity to have compassion not only for others but for himself. Um, hence, his ability to to endure. Um, Violence, right? And James Baldwin also talks about the the turmoil in in America and race relations as a reflection of our of our inner psyche. Um, so, but when you're living in the struggle and when you're part of an oppressed group, it's hard to zoom out, right? There's a privilege in being able to sort of perch beyond and sort of see how um, us humans are sort of interacting and how um, there's not this masterful plan to sort of um, put one group. Uh, outside of of uh, society, but rather we do it inherently. And and if we obviously, as a historian, you look back throughout time, sort of this this power of differential and exploitation of people is a story that happens over and over and over again. Um, so how do you how do you think King sort of reconciled that and was able to communicate that through you know his his testimonies and I have a dream 
in a way that resonated with people, but it, it still it's hard to really to really um, understand and really under and and sit with and embody this 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 understanding that we are participants and and oppression of one another. Um, and we need to remind ourselves of our humanity, but also our divinity. Yeah. Um, so what would, what would you th- think King would say to that? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I guess I would say that it's aspirational. And, and it only could have come from a, from a preacher, from a man of God, I think. Because what he's saying is that we are all trying to live up to the image of God. We're all trying to fulfill the, the idea that we're made in the image of God, that we're all God's creations. And we, we don't succeed all the time. The, the point of religion is not to be perfect, it's to strive. So when he's able to see that the country is failing and that we, are, we still have to suffer, but we're striving. And yes, he believes that even Bull Connor, even Jim, Sheriff Jim Clark can, are, are, are also made in the image of God and they have their own flaws but he believes in their ability to, to work, to aspire to be better people too. And, and he's, not just like, he's not just saying that stuff. He believes it. Well, I want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, Jonathan's going to be here for a few more minutes if you haven't gotten your book signed yet. Uh, but Jonathan, thank you so much for honoring us. Jonathan Igg's fantastic biography of Martin Luther King Jr. is a much-needed reminder of how King accomplished what he did through civility, nonviolence, and eloquence, something today's leaders are lacking to our detriment. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.